Second Kings chapter 13, verse 14. Do you have it? Come on, BWI, y'all got it. Let's do this. Here it goes. Verse 14 says this. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. You know, there's certain things in scripture that I don't have time to preach and I don't even really understand, but it's just not fair. Elijah got a limousine sent for him. A fiery chariot came and took him right to heaven. Elisha, who got a double portion, he died of a sickness. That's just not fair. That's just not. Where's my chariot at? Says he would become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow. Somebody say, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it, and Elisha put his hand on the king's hand. Somebody say, a hand on a hand. And he said, open the east window, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians and Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrow. So he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times. Somebody say, three times. And he Stop. Can you help me preach? Look at somebody across the room asking why you stop. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. No, 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 for real, for real. Ask somebody, why'd you stop? Why'd you stop believing? Why'd, why'd you stop praying? Why, why'd you stop contending? Why, why did you stop expecting something great for God? Why have you settled with that medication? Why have you settled with that broken relationship? Why, why have you settled with a job that makes you miserable? Why, why? Come on, preach to somebody next to you. Ask them, why'd you stop on three? He didn't say to stop on three. Why? Why did you stop? I love this. It says the man of God was angry. Which tells me anger is not a sin. If it's pointed at the right thing. He said he was angry with me. He said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck the Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. I don't know about you, but I'm not praying 21 days for a three-time blessing. I'm not praying these 21 days for a three-time breakthrough. I'm not pursuing God at 6 a.m. in the morning for a God if you only will. I'm looking for a breakthrough. I'm looking for an overwhelming victory. I'm looking for my enemies to be vanquished. I'm looking for the Lord to be glorified. We're not praying for a church. We're praying for a city. We're not just praying for a city. We're praying for a state. We're praying for revival in this nation. We will not be a just three times church. Father God, we're grateful. We're thankful for this opportunity to be in your presence. Speak to us, we pray, in the matchless name of Jesus. Somebody shout amen. I want to preach a message to you today, a message called Stop Praying It Safe. Stop Praying It Safe. I, uh, I don't have a bucket list. Y'all know the whole bucket list? 
idea of you need to make a list of all the different things that you plan on doing before you die. Uh, I do not have that list yet, partially because I don't plan on dying. Uh, I'm going to live to 120, and then God's just going to take me straight up to heaven. So I have no intention. I'm joking. I'm going to die, but no time soon. So that's probably why I don't have a bucket list. But if I had a bucket list, uh, experience I had about three years ago would have been on my bucket list. Through a friend of a friend and a connection, I had the opportunity to drive a race car around a real track. It was this Porsche racing experience, and it's kind of something that they had set up for a bunch of pastor friends of mine, and we kind of go in there, and you, you sit down, and you do the little safety class and all that other good stuff, and then you get in a real Porsche race car with a professional driver, and they take you on a few laps around the track, but, but, but not laps that you would drive, laps that a professional would drive. So we get in there, and we sit in the car, and the professional says, are you, you, you're buckled up, and you get your kind of harness in, you're, you're ready to rumble, and he says, okay, here's what I need you to do. When you see a turn coming, I need you to lean with the turn. I'm not even the one driving the car. I'm just like, why would I got to lean with the turn? I don't understand what you're talking about. Next thing I know, he punches the gas. And um, I felt like I got punched in the chest. It was just, and we... We head off on this straightaway, and one of the things that I realized is when you're on a straightaway, you could be going at 60, you could be going at 160. You don't really know because you don't feel it, especially if you're in a nice car that has some weight and it kind of just sits in that speed. So we're flying, and I'm looking at his speedometer, and it's like 80, 90, 100. 120, 140, and I'm just like, all right, Jesus, I'm not even Catholic, but we're going to figure this out. I don't know if this means anything, but take me now, Lord Jesus, and I'm, I mean, I'm an adrenaline junkie, so I'm just ready for it, and, and as we come to the first turn, I saw the turn. I'm not sure he saw the turn because he wasn't slowing down as he was coming towards this turn. And some of you may have taught your 16-year-old how to drive and you're in the passenger seat. If you've ever had that experience, when they're not slowing down, you start jamming at brakes that are not there. You're, you're just kind of subconsciously like, where are the brakes at? And I, I'm reaching for these brakes and he's not slowing down. And I'm like, this is how it's going to end. By the way, if you're going to go out, go out in a Porsche at 160 miles per hour. That's not a bad way to go. We are looking at this barrier, and it's like I could see my life flashing before my eyes. I mean, the last second before we get to that turn, he jams on the brakes with a faith as if he knew that he had gotten a recent brake job. I've never hit my brakes that hard. I mean, that car comes to like 60 miles per hour in a second. We whiplash around that turn. He jams on that gas over, and we're gone. And now I understand why he said lean into the turn. And as I was leaning into the turn, that Burger King sandwich I had was leaning into that turn as well. About after that first lap, I was like, let me out. Let me out. I can't. The second lap he took us around, he was explaining kind of his mindset. Here's my breaking point. Here's my acceleration point. Here's what I'm doing here. Here's what I'm doing that. And he begins to explain the mindset of racing to us. And he said, most people, A, you do not drive like this because it is illegal. Somebody say amen. And he said, the other reason why most people, even on a track, would not drive this way 
is because they don't know the capability of the machine that they are driving. They don't know the capability of the acceleration, of the traction, of the brakes. They don't know that the brakes are actually a lot more effective than they believe that they are. And he said, because they don't know the capability of the machine, they're never going to push this machine to the limits of what it was designed for. He said, there's so much more in this machine than the average person could ever get out of it. He said, by the way, it's smart for that person because even though the machine has limits that are beyond that person, they don't have the ability to control it. And he said, if you're going to maximize this vehicle, you have to know the limits of its capability and you have to possess the ability to maximize its potential. He said, there's two factors. He said, you have to have the ability to maximize the potential and you have to have the knowledge of what that machine is capable of. And he said, if you have those two things, you can get out of this machine velocity that the average person could not even comprehend. As I was thinking about this, here's the thought that crossed my mind. Most people don't get out of prayer what prayer is capable of. Most people, if prayer was a race car, we're putting around the track like we're on a moped, going through the streets of Europe. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is looking at us saying, don't, don't you know the machine of prayer that you have between your hands? Don't you know the horsepower that is behind your Jesus? Will you do this? Don't you understand the breaking system that you have access to? If you only understood the capability of the machine that you're driving. Most people do not know the potential of prayer. And even if they knew the potential of prayer, they don't have the ability to maximize it. I mean, we all know the verse where it says, I have not seen, mine has not heard, no, no, it can conceive what God has in store for us. We, we know we serve a God that calls things that are not as though they are. He looks at dead things and calls them alive. We know the verse where it says God does exceeding and abundantly above all that we could ever ask, think, or imagine. Conceptually, we know that God has all power and that our prayer gives us access to that power. But in actuality, so many of us don't know how to tap into that power. And our prayer sounds like, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, which is not even biblical. This passage that we read in 2 Kings chapter 13, Elisha, who was the prophet at that time in Israel, was coming to the end of his life. If you know the story of Elisha, Elisha was the apprentice of Elijah. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets who called fire down from heaven, who established the word of the Lord. And Elisha said, I want double what you have. Elisha understood it's not my job to replace. It's my job to take the second leg of the baton and to go further than I had seen my mentor go. And as you study the life of Elisha, he actually did double the miracles that Elijah did. Well, he was coming to the end of his life. And when the king heard that he was coming to the end of his life, he came and he, he kneeled down next to his bed and he said, my father, my father. Now, as you study, you'll discover that's the same greeting that Elisha gave Elijah before Elijah was caught up into heaven. The king was honoring Elisha, saying, you are the representative of God here on earth. 
Then he went on to say, he said, the king's horses and the king's chariots. He was making a reference to, we ain't got no horses and we don't have any chariots. Actually, the chapter before they had been down, they had only had 10 chariots and only a handful of horses. What he was saying is the state of our country right now is so desolate and destroyed. I don't know how we're going to make it much further. What he was saying is, Elisha, what are we going to do without you? If you go, we're going to be in a bad state. Elisha says, hey, go get some arrows. And you heard this story. He said, put it in the bow and aim it out the east window. And he aimed his hand and they shot three arrows out of the window. Then he said, take those arrows and begin to strike the ground. And he struck the ground once and a second time and a third time. After the third time, the Bible says that he stopped. And, and, and you know, sometimes when you're in church, and no offense because I'm just like you, and you're churchy, you can read passages in Scripture and you could judge somebody even though you would have done the exact same thing. Like, like, like put yourself in the story. Imagine I am telling you, take these arrows. We're not even in the woods looking for deer. We're in a random building. Take these arrows, get down on your hands and knees. Here I go, cameraman. <laughs> we didn't prep this before. And strike the, just, just, come on now. You got your church clothes on. How awkward do you feel striking the ground? And I could, you could just see it. Am I doing it right? Elisha ain't saying anything. All right, I'm done with this. This is weird. After that third time, he stopped. Elisha got angry. He said, why'd you stop at three? Why did you let the discomfort of your flesh move you out of the position of breakthrough? Why did you allow the fact that it felt awkward and weird and it didn't make sense and you couldn't make the connection to bring you out of a position of breakthrough. He said, if you had struck five or six times, it would have been a total victory. But because you stopped on three, it's only a partial victory. I believe this story is a prophetic picture of prayer. You see, in that time in Israel, because Jesus had not yet died on the cross and made our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the average man could not go and meet with God themselves. They had to go through mediator, through a priest or through a prophet. So by the king coming to Elisha, it was a symbol of us coming to God. So Elisha was in the upper room. As you read throughout scripture, there's so many supernatural prayer meetings that happen in an upper room. It was 120 that met in the upper room where the Holy Spirit was first poured out. It was Daniel, we talked about a few weeks ago, that was in the upper room opening the window, praying unto God. Something powerful happens in the upper room. And he went in and he began to seek God. God, what are we going to do? But I feel that Joash stopped short. He was praying it safe because he was not looking for the maxima to maximize the potential of God. He was just looking to escape his problem. Now, I've discovered for so many of us, our prayer life could actually not be maximizing God's potential. Our prayer life could be simply escaping our problems. 
But here's what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Somebody say, that's me. Come on, say it with your chest out. Somebody say that. Somebody say, I'm a child of God. I belong to the most high God. He said, you are my son. And by the way, whenever you read scripture, everybody wants to get all politically correct. There's males and there's females. I, I want to hear son and daughter of God. Hear me. When you see son in the scripture, don't think gender. Think position and inheritance. The firstborn son received two-thirds of the father's possession. So even as a daughter, you want a son's inheritance. You say, man, I want the first of what my father has to give. He said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Another translation says, today I have become your father. Here's what God said. He said, ask of me and I will give you Hanover. Is that what it said? It said, ask of me and I'm going to give you Columbia. I'm going to give you Randallstown. I'm, no, he said, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Here is how God is telling you to pray. He said, pray for nation-sized prayers. Not talking about you, just talking about me. If God answered all my prayers, would this nation shift? If God answered all my prayers, would this nation be impacted? Here is what I believe that God is trying to stir in this church. I believe that God is calling us up to a higher level of prayer, a higher level of expectation of God. I'm not just praying that you would fix my problems, but God, I'm praying that you would respond in a nation-sized prayer. God, I'm not just praying for the pain to be relieved. I am praying for healing and for total health for the rest of my life. And by the way, since I'm praying for health, I'm praying for my children and my children's children that this sickness and disease shall never touch my family again. I'm not just praying for a raise, but God, I'm praying for more than enough so I can start paying off other people's debts and position other people to maximize their potential for God. I'm not just praying for a church. I'm praying for the churches of the DMV, that revival would break out, that people would begin to come to Christ by the thousands. I believe that God is looking for a people that are going to pray nation-sized prayers. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, it says this. The church prayed, now look on the enemy's threats and grant to your servants. First of all, God, give us boldness. The first thing the early church prayed for, God, you see it through all scripture. Paul would constantly pray, God, give me boldness that I can preach the gospel the way it was supposed to be preached. So give me boldness. He said, then stretch out your hand and heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of the holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. Union Church, is it possible that we can pray to a level of fervency where God begins to shake us, shake our family, shake our home, shake this city for the glory of God. I believe God sent me to tell me and for you to eavesdrop that it's time to stop praying safe prayers. 
it's time to stop starting our prayers with God, if you can, if only you can. God, if you would. Come on now, this is not an if, God. This is a do you know that nothing is impossible for God. Three things we need to have. Three things we need to have if we're going to pray nation-sized prayer. The first thing is this. I have to know whose I am. If I'm going to pray nation-sized prayers, I have to know whose I am. I'm a church kid. I don't got nothing else for you. I don't know what to tell you. I was born on a Sunday. My dad jumped out of the pulpit, rushed to the hospital. I, was, I mean, I've just been in church my entire life. I tell people I've been in church more times than Jesus has been in church because I went to some church services and Jesus was not there. And I'm like, why did you leave me here by myself? I actually loved church growing up because all my friends went to church. Now, we didn't love church because we loved worshiping and singing and all that. That came later. We loved church because we would spend the entire service scheming over whose house we got to go to after church. We'd all sit together and they said, as long as we wouldn't make any noise in church, we could sit. And we would say, okay, do you want to go to your house? No, my mom took my PlayStation. We don't need to come to my house. How about your house? Well, I still got my second Dreamcast. We come to my, and we're just, they're scheming. And then after we had come up with our plan, then we would go to the parents as a committee. And we would present our requests to them. We would present our good grades for the week and the fact that our rooms were clean and our chores were done. Can we please, please go over to such and such's house? And on a typical Sunday, they would normally say yes. We would all pile up in that one person's house. But before we went, my mom or my dad, they'd pull me aside and they'd say, hey, Stephen. Now you're going over to their house, but remember, you are a Chandler. You've eaten already. You don't need any food. Come on, anybody grew up like this? Don't go over there acting like I don't feed you. Don't, don't go over there asking for no food. Make sure you clean up before you leave. Make sure you behave. Make sure you do what you're supposed to do. So we'd get over the person's house and they would say, Stephen, are you hungry? <laughs> starving. Starving. I haven't eaten since breakfast. No, ma'am. Can I get you something? No, ma'am. I'm good. Come on now. I don't even say ma'am to my mom, but no ma'am. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> on my best behavior. Why? Because I was not a son of that house. But the kids whose house it was didn't even bother to ask their parents. They would just go over to the fridge, fling it open. What do y'all want? You want some of this? We got some. I don't know whose Cinnabon this is, but they ain't going to know. You can, you can grab this. We got, we got some frozen pops here. Why? Because when it's your house, you ask a little different. When you're a son of the house, when you're a daughter of the house, hear me. Some of us as children of the almighty God are asking, acting like we are a guest in the house of God. We're acting like when we come into prayer, someone told us, you're, don't, don't ask for anything. Don't act like you're not hungry. Don't act like you aren't fed. Here's what Jesus said. He said, when you pray, here's how you ought to pray. My father. He said, before you ask him of anything, remind, he knows he's your dad. It's you who don't trust that. Remind yourself 
that I am a child of Almighty God and hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? It means you're my dad and I know what's in your fridge. I know there's healing in your fridge. I know there's breakthrough in your fridge. I know there's peace in your fridge. I know there's joy in your fridge. And I know that is your good pleasure to give me. Joash came to Elisha and he said, my father, my father, but hear me, he did not mean it. He was using the words of relationship, but he did not truly believe that there was relationship. How do I know? Because Joash was one of the most ungodly kings of Israel. He literally had put up idols and was worshiping all these foreign gods, and he was not living a life of repentance. Hear me. The only reason we don't live a life of repentance, here's what the Bible says, it's because you don't know the goodness of God. It's not because you're evil. It's not because you're ratchet. It's not because you're a God hater. It's just you don't know that your father has so much more for you than anything that the world can offer you itself. The first step to praying God-sized prayer is you got to know that God is your father. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you get saved, that the Holy Spirit, he comes on you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, For we did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear. But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, then if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Somebody say, break it down. He said, for we did not receive the spirit of bondage. Watch this again. Again to fear. I, I am blessed. My dad's actually sitting here on the front and he is my greatest cheerleader. I have been blessed to have a phenomenal father. But I know for so many people, that's not their story. For so many people, they had a father that was never present. They had a father that was emotionally absent from the home or abusive or whatever. And I know that's not all fathers. There's phenomenal fathers at Union Church. Somebody say amen. But just through the last decade of pastoring people, I've discovered that the father wound is one of the greatest wounds any person can ever endure. It brings a deep-seated rejection and insecurity and fear. As I've talked to people that grew up without a father in the home, they talked about living under a cloud of fear. Because as we went to sleep at night, if somebody was to break in, there was no protector in our home. As the 11-year-old, as a 12-year-old, as a 14-year-old, as a 6-year-old, I was the protector. They talked about there was no financial stability. There was no provider in the home. And, and if anything happened, if mom lost her job or whatever, we, th there's a cloud of fear that you live under when you are fatherless. By the way, the Bible says spiritually that we were all spiritually born under that cloud of fear because we were born disconnected from our heavenly father. Well, here's what the Bible says when you get saved. It says God has not given you a spirit of bondage again to fear. One of the first things that salvation breaks off of you is an orphan spirit. 
That mindset that I don't have anybody to look out for me. I'm on my own. I don't have any protection or I don't have any covering. He said, no, no, you have a spirit that allows you to be fathered, that allows you to say, Abba, Father, I am protected. I am covered. I have an inheritance. As a matter of fact, I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. But it's the Holy Spirit that gives me that spirit of sonship. So if I'm lacking the knowledge that God is my father and I can ask him of anything, if I'm feeling like I'm in a position where I can't ask for much, where I'm on my own, here's what it is. I am Holy Spirit deficient in my life. I'm lacking awareness of the Holy Spirit inside of me because it is that Holy Spirit that allows me to recognize my position as a son of Almighty God. So when the early church prayed, they prayed, pour out your Holy Spirit and give us boldness. Watch this so we can pray the way we ought to pray. I believe that God first and foremost wants to pour out his Holy Spirit. What is that? That is God himself in you. So that you can pray, not as an orphan, not as a beggar, but as someone who is entitled to all that your father has. The second thing is this. Write this down. I have to see what I'm aiming at. I don't just have to know that I belong to God. I have to see what I'm aiming at. Elisha said, hey, go grab those arrows, open the east window, and aim. Some of us pray prayers that are so vague, you wouldn't even know if God answered. Can, can I give you an example? Father God, bless me. There's so many questions. You, know, you understand how much we confuse God? He's like, based on my scripture, I can bless you. Where do you want me to bless you? Am I bless you in the city? Or am I going to bless you in the field? Am I going to bless you when you come? Or should I bless you when you go? Where exactly do you want me to put the blessing? Am I blessing your finances? Am I blessing your health? Am I blessing your relationships? Am I I'm so confused. Where do I put the blessing? We pray these vague, aimless prayers. And then we're confused. Ah, we get in trouble. Can I be honest with you? Because our goal is not results. Our goal is prayer. Because do you understand? Prayer is not the end. Prayer is the means to the end. Prayer is just the vehicle to see heaven broken open in our lives. But we think prayer makes us more godly and makes us more spiritual. So we pray and then we feel good about ourselves. Forgive me. I don't feel good waking up at 6 a.m. and coming in here for prayer. I'm going to do it because I want to see a breakthrough. But, but don't be smiling at me at 545. I, I ain't got nothing to say to you. I'll see you at 615 after the Holy Spirit has met with me. But I'm not walking out of 21 days of prayer saying, God, look. Look what I did. I prayed for 21 days. I, I'm godly. I'm spiritual. None of my other friends prayed for 21. I was here every... No, 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 no. I'm not here to tech, tick something off on my religious list. I'm looking at day 22 and day 23 and day 24. I am praying for results, not for an emotional feeling. James 4.2 says this, but you want what you don't have, so you kill to get it. You long for what others have and you can't afford it. So you start to fight to take it away from them. That's a whole nother message and a whole nother day. 
that we think resources are limited. We think if someone has, it means that I cannot have. He said, yet the reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God for it. And when you do ask, you don't get it because I love how the word preaches for me. Your whole break it down. You got to aim your prayer. You can't just God bless me. How? Where? When? Why? You only what will give you pleasure. Zig Ziglar said this. He said, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. One of the reasons why we don't pray specific prayers is because we're afraid we can't handle the disappointment. You see, if I don't pin God to anything, I could pretend like he's never disappointed me. If I don't hold him to anything, then if it doesn't happen, I'm good. So I'm not going to ask him for a house. Just got to provide shelter. Oh, there's tents at Home Depot. There's a tarp down there at Lowe's. Shelter? It's a little vague. You know, I'm looking at the horizon. Don't look like marriage is kind of for my future. God, give me godly relationships in my life. I know I'm getting close. I'm your pastor and I love you. And I'm not joking when I say that. You're scared. You're scared to ask God for something specific because you're scared of him letting you down. And you're in a position where you say, I've been let down so many times and I've gotten my hopes up so many times. I don't know what I'm going to do if I get let down another time. This may not help you, but it's going to ground you. Can I tell you where I pray from? I pray from a position of God You can't let me down, and you can't disappoint me, because what you've already done for me is so much greater than anything I could ever ask, think, or imagine. And not only that, my contentment is not in an answered prayer. My contentment is in you. So if I don't get the answer to my prayer, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep it moving. I'm going to keep loving God. I'm going to keep loving people. I'm going to keep walking in purpose because that house, that spouse, that job, that ministry, that building, that city, that million dollars or whatever, maybe it didn't define me. It was just icing on the cake. God, you define me. So I literally have nothing to lose because the only thing I have is you and I can't lose you. So I'm going to ask because I'm not afraid of a no. I'm going to ask because I'm not afraid of a not right now. I'm going to ask because I'm not afraid of you'll figure it out in heaven. Remember, I read a book by Dr. Youngie Cho. He's a pastor. Women believed to be the largest church in the world. They had over 900,000 people in attendance on a weekend. I can't even wrap my mind around that. That is literally a nation. And he said as he was coming up in the faith, he, he, he began to pray. And, and he said, I, I got this idea of prayer. And he said, God, I, I, I want a bicycle to get around and to meet people at the small groups. And God, I want a desk. 
And he said, for months and months and months, he prayed, God, I need a bike and I need a desk. God, I need a bike, I need a desk. And for months he prayed, there was no bike and there was no desk. He said, one day I was so angry and I was so frustrated. And I said, God, you said you could do anything. You can heal, you can deliver. If you can't give me a bike or a desk, how in the world are you going to give me this nation? He said, he felt like the Holy Spirit said, I'm waiting on you to tell me which bike. What kind of desk do you want? He said, there's oak desk, and there's mahogany desk, and there's laminate desk, and there's steel desk, and now in 2021, there's reclaimed wood desk, and harvest. He said, what kind of desk do you want? And he said, I, I, I want an American bicycle. He's in South Korea. He said, I want an American bicycle in this particular time of, type of desk. He said he got off of his knees. He was living in an apartment. He was going down the stairs, and there was a moving truck outside. Some American diplomat or whatever was moving out of the city. The truck was packed. The only thing they could not fit on the truck was a bicycle and a desk. And he walks and said, would you mind taking this bike and taking this desk? It can't fit on the truck. We, God says, if you would just aim at something. Somebody say aim at something. You have nothing to lose. Why not ask? God, I want that job, and I want that house, and I want, uh-oh, that spouse. And yeah. Some of y'all like just ask, and yes, I love how I know y'all. Some of y'all are uncomfortable right now. Because you're like, I don't know about this pastor. Sound like you're preaching an Aladdin genie, God. That you just rub him the right way and he just does whatever you want him to do. This don't sound like the Bible. I'm a bond servant of God. I'm here to suffer for the Lord. As if the Bible doesn't say every good and perfect gift comes from your father. I love Y'all can tell I love preaching, right? And those of you that shout and say, amen, I love preaching to y'all, but I love preaching to the skeptics, the one that ain't stood up one time, just, I'm just, because don't you worry, I'm going to bring it back to the Bible, and you can't even mess with it. Y'all ready? The prophet didn't let him shoot the arrow. He said, wait, let me put my hand on your hand, and let me guide what you aim at. Because if you just aim on your own, you might aim at the wrong thing. Can anybody testify that you wanted something and then you didn't get it? And then about three years later, you're so glad you didn't get it because it was broke and unemployed and wasn't kind of the nicest person ever. And at that moment, you didn't see it, but you're thanking God that he moved your aim. Anybody thanking God that he did not give you the job that you asked for? Because in the moment, it looked like it's what you wanted. But a few years later, you realize the work life balance was non-existent and it went out of he said don't just aim at something let me guide you let him guide you this is what an unguided prayer looks like because we can't see the future we are not Alpha and Omega, the one who is and was and is to come. Why not let the one who can see miles down the road put his hand on your hand? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, I will watch, stand my watch on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me. I love this verse. I preach it almost every week. 
and what I will answer when I am corrected. Can I tell you how I pray? You don't got to pray like this. Can I just tell you how I pray? I go pick the house I want. I said, God, I want that house. But God, is this the house that you want for me? God, I want this, but is this what you want for me? And before I aim at it with my faith, I surrender it to my Father. And I say, is this the best that you have for me? Because I do not want to aim at the wrong thing. Last thing is this. Write this down. I have to be desperate. I got to be desperate. There are three stages of prayer. The first stage is making your requests, figuring out what do you want. So many of us are so afraid to tell God what we want, but the Bible says he's giving you the mind of Christ. What do you want? What do you want? Some of us are so beaten down. You've been in and out of hospital rooms for so long. You've buried so many loved ones. You've been so stressed out. He said, all I want to do is sleep. All I want to do is have one three-month run of not crying over another person lost. I, I, just, I just want to get to the end of the month and not wonder how am I going to pay my bills. And I find sometimes life can beat you down so much, it can beat the hope right out of you. It can beat the faith right out of you. It can put you in a position where you don't even mean it, but you start to pray prayers like, God, if you only can get me through this, get me past it. No, 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 no. If you had hope, what would you ask for? Make your request, not your survival, not your anguish, but make your request known to God. The second stage of prayer is confirmation. Don't just go out declaring God's going to do it. Don't go out expecting him to do it. Bring it into his presence. Say, God, I want this, but do you want this for me? And then the last stage of prayer is the pushing the enemy back off of the promise that God has made you. If I had time to pre preach all the prophetic imageries in this, it said that he had an arrow and he shot it out the window and the arrow represented the victory that God had brought in his life. But then he took the arrow and he began to strike it on the ground. The Bible says that arrows are like words that are flying and that will accomplish what they were sent to accomplish. He literally took God's promises and he started to beat it into reality. There's a moment of prayer where I'm not trying to convince God to be on my side. I am pushing back the enemy from what God had promised me. I am decreeing and declaring by faith. This is what God has for me. This is just my opinion. You could read something else in the text. I think the reason that king stopped on three strikes is because he wasn't desperate. He didn't really want to break through from God. Did just give you Stephen? He just showed up because he heard the prophet was dying. And he thought it was proper protocol to go show his last respects. Because if you read throughout scripture, from the moment that Elisha anointed Jehu, Joash's grandfather, you did not hear of one king call on Elisha another time until this. They left him out in a room in a corner. They didn't need him. 
I've discovered that it's not biblical. This is just Stephen, okay? So you can take it. Just a world word picture. I think there's a room of miracles in heaven that's locked up. And the only key that unlocks it is desperation. I think there's a room in heaven of breakthrough that's locked up and the only key that unlocks it are people that are relentless. I think that there's a room in heaven of deliverance and freedom and overwhelming influence that is locked up and it is only open for the effectual. Here's what the Bible says, fervent. Fervent prayers of the right. I think about, remember Jacob? He said, Genesis 32, 26. God said, let me go for it's daybreak. I don't got time to do with you no more. We've had a little moment. I touch your hip. You're going to walk different. You're transformed. I healed your relationship with Esau. You're good. You go. I'm, going, I'm leaving. Jacob said, I don't care what you got to do. I don't know what your next appointment is, but it's going to have to wait. Because I will not let you go until you bless me. I know who you are. And I know what you're capable of. And I know what I'm asking for. And I know that it is your will. So I refuse to buy into the lie of the enemy that God doesn't want it for me or I don't deserve it or I don't worry. No, I know the promise of God and I am going to stand on this promise and I refuse to move until I see it coming to pass. I throw out that theology that says it's all going to work out in heaven. No, you said with long life, you will satisfy me here on earth. You said anything that I give up, you're going to give it back to me here on earth. And with that eternal life, I'm wondering at Union Church, are there any desperate people? Are there any relentless people? Are there any people that are effective and fervent and say, I refuse to settle for good enough. I refuse to settle for survival. I refuse to settle for some orphan's portion. I am the son and daughter of Almighty God. My father said, ask me for the nations and he will give it to me. He said that the corners of the earth are my possession and I will not stop short until I see all that God has for me. I don't know what you know about this pastor, but let me let you know, I will not stop until cancer has no authority in this house. I will not stop until divorce is a word that we don't even know how to pronounce. We will not stop until we see every city with its hands lifted up, giving glory unto the almighty God, because that is what our God is capable of. If you believe it, somebody lift a shout of praise unto God in this place. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Either he's God or he's not. Either he's the one that parts Red Seas or he's not. 
based on the fact that I know he's lifted my guilt and he's lifted my shame and his blood has made me new. If he can do that, what can he not do? So here's what we're going to start doing. We're going to start making our prayers God-sized prayers and not problem-sized prayers. I'm not praying for an escape from a problem. I'm praying, God, I want all that you have for me. Father God, we're grateful. We're thankful for this opportunity. Just where you are with your eyes closed and your head bowed, if you could pray this prayer with me, say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Just give God a moment to make this time, to make this message personal to you. I challenge you, whatever you're praying for, whatever you've written in your prayer book, up it. Don't pray survival prayers. Pray breakthrough prayers. I have a quick question for you. Are you a child of God? Have you ever received the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father? See, there's a lot of people that are in church that they're a child of religion, but they're not a child of God. They're a child of culture. They know how to say the verses and read the Bible, but they've never surrendered all that they are to Jesus. The Bible says that he paid the price for all of our sins on the cross, but it requires us to respond by saying, God, we give up control and we give it all to you. And really, that's what begins this journey and this access to Almighty God. Whether you're in this room with BWI in Columbia, Baltimore County, watching online, but you say, Pastor, I can't say that I have a relationship with God the way that you're talking about. Or maybe you're like that prodigal where you were once in relationship with the Father, but you ran off and you did it on your own and you finally come to the end of yourself and you say, I need the Father back in my life. If that's you, we are excited. This whole moment was created for you. All you have to do is ask him to come back in and he'll come rushing in. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you. That when I forgot about you, you never forgot about me. Thank you for dying on the cross that all my sin, all my mistakes can be erased. Today, I surrender. I give you all of me. Be my Lord, be my Savior, and use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Come on, can somebody celebrate for every single person?